Hey everybody, Mike and Tim here. We're so glad you're with us. If you're signing uh, in on the YouTubes, you're going to notice Tim Stafford has a very different look today. He is recording via his phone. He's looking a little, um, looking a little, I don't know, what would be the word there? Looking a little burly? Is that is that the word? I don't know, but Probably. you look great. And I, I shouldn't always talk about how you look, but <laughs> there's part of me that's just jealous, Tim. That's all it is. You, you know what you look like? A dude collecting fish sticks. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Let's and, keep it going. And you know what? I've always been enamored with. I've wanted so bad to go backpack the eastern, northeastern coast, like through Maine and that area. Oh, oh. I've just always. But those fishing villages that are there, bro. I've always been enamored. No, no, with no. Those. I'm just saying. Like, if you're listening, yes, this is a cheap maneuver to get you to hit subscribe. Absolutely, but go to the YouTube's <laughs> and watch. Just look at Tim and go. Does that man not look like a sailor? He's so yeah. just perfect. I mean, perfect storm. Um, what are other good sailor movies? Um, I don't know, but those all end What about Bob? For everybody. That's a good sailor movie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Killigan's Island? Come on. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I know any other ones. But Blue Lagoon? I just love that you went from a perfect storm to <laughs> what about Bob? <laughs> Overboard? Yes. So anyway, brothers and sisters, we are completing today the trilogy of interviews that are celebrating our 400th episode. Um, we have been um, joined by the members of the Holy Post individually. And today um, we are joined by uh, Caitlin Shess, who we've had on a couple of times before. Her, bur her, bur her book, Liturgy of Politics. <laughs> Her book uh, was incredible. She's got a book coming out, a book coming out in August called The Ballot and the Bible. We'll talk a little bit about, but our interview, it's so funny. I'm, I commit all the things I hate in interviewing. When I listen to people interviewing other people, there are certain things that annoy me. Like, like the interviewer's like, yeah, that's all. Like they're cheering on the interviewer and they're always having to comment like, whoa, or great or awesome or whatever. And I'm doing that the whole time. And it just, <laughs> I hate, I hate myself, but it was so good. We're not going to, we're, we're not scrapping it. But I have to tell you, Tim, and you know this, we are and have been um, surrounded by very, very gifted and, and brilliant women. Um, Bonnie, mm -hmm. who was one of our co-hosts years ago, one of the brightest minds I have ever, ever encountered. Um, Susie and Bethany, who are pastor friends, are just unbelievably wise um, women and incredible, incredible pastors and leaders. And, and Caitlin's up there for me, too. She, she is just brilliant and, and, and yet has this beautiful um hopefulness about the whole enterprise you know she hasn't given way yet to cynicism and despair about the whole project and she's just doing great work and so i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm annoying in the following interview by saying yeah boom snap um i couldn't help myself i just want to apologize yeah, and 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 what's great is that Tim, per usual, rescues it by because oh, yeah. we were supposed to be talking about the future of the church, but she she's taking a class, and I just couldn't help but ask a bunch of questions about the class. Well, it was all rooted in her understanding of the future of the church. So, well, I know, but you brought it out, Tim. You did it. You did it. You are a fisher. She, well, you are a. I think what you're what you're saying overall is that, and yes, I see where you're going with that joke, is that. <laughs> She, uh, she's so easy to interview because she just brings all that. Yeah. You're like, Hey, what are you thinking about today? And yeah. Okay. Boom. We're an hour in. Yeah. It's just so, it's just so great. So I highly, I highly, highly recommend if you don't, if you're not a regular listener to the Holy Post, um, man, they're a great group of folks. There's so many great podcasts out there. I, I asked our Patreon audience, what podcast do they listen to? And we, we probably got well over 75 different suggestions. 
so we love that. There's so much great content out there. So anyway, thank you to those guys for uh, playing with us and um, talking about the future of the church. Um, I don't know, Tim. I mean, we've got we've got our pastors, ministers gathering thing coming up. So yeah, when people listen to this, we'll be I'll be in Nashville. Yes, we'll be doing that. We're so excited. We have 18 people uh, that are that are somehow getting to Nashville, and we're hoping that this becomes a prototype of things we can do in the future. Um, but we're super excited. And uh, if you think to you know. If you're the praying kind of type and you're like, hey, I, I really want that to go well for these people, dude, throw it up there. Throw it up to the heavens and see what happens. We'll take it. Yeah, that'd be actually going to give me goosebumps because there's enough people that listen to this podcast that if everybody did throw up a 30 second prayer. Yeah, God would have 12 30 second prayers to deal with all at That's once. That's right. That's a lot. 12, he, 12 apostles. Twelve uh, is all you Ooh, need. It's divine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your grace and mercy and kindness and this beautiful community we get to be a part of. Anyway, enjoy. Here's the, to the next 100 episodes. Here, here it is, Tim. We're going on eight <laughs> years, bro. I mean, why not? Do Let's eight? shoot for ten. But why not do eight more? Why not? There you go. Why not? That would put us in our early 40s. That's right. And um, I think that'd be great. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> ah, that's so great. I hope that's where it starts. <laughs> Tim Stafford on his phone today because his computer was not liking Riverside.fm. Oh, no. Nope. No. You actually, I think, looked better. On on the phone camera. Oh, thank you. I yeah. feel better. This is it's a kind great of a angle. fuller. It's kind of a fuller shot. I like it, <laughs> Caitlin. That's what everybody's been waiting for. Caitlin, tell us everything. What 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 classes? <laughs> what classes did you just finish? Oh, um, I finished a feminist theory class in the gender studies Whoa. department. Wow. Which was a ride. Um, and then I, I did a history of interpretation in modernity, history of biblical interpretation in modernity class. And then I did an independent study with an Old Testament professor on the theological interpretation of the Old Testament prophets. Oh, my wow. goodness. Just okay. some light reading. Yeah, yeah. so nothing, <laughs> nothing much is what you're saying. Have I you just had someone down? actually, Mike, like two days ago, send me an email wanting the full syllabus for the classes I took last semester because you asked me last time about them and someone paid so much yes. attention and was still thinking about it that they were like, I want to know everything that you read. <laughs> totally. That's why, that's why I was asking. We have somebody who wants to know what you read for Marx, your Marx class. Yes. Oh, that's oh, yeah. true. Was that that person that emailed? I, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's amazing. What, what was your, what was your feminist theory class like? It, <laughs> I mean, in some ways, like whatever you would imagine a gender studies class at a place like Duke just like looked like, that's exactly yeah. what it was. Um, there were multiple people in that class who really loved baking. So weirdly enough, we had baked goods almost every class, which was amazing. I, and incredible. it was, it was, it's a really interdisciplinary class. So it was like a bunch of history, PhD students, anthropology, a couple of us from the divinity school. Um, so a bunch of people that don't speak any of the same languages, but totally. we just kind of, it's a, it's the basic class everyone has to take if you're getting a certificate in gender studies, which I'm not, but it meant that like anyone who had any interest in feminism or women or gender mm -hmm. studies were in that class. So it was a lot of stuff I've never read before and yeah. <laughs> a little overwhelming, but it was good. What, what could the church learn from a, from a class like that? Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. We didn't really, so this class really started in the like mid seventies. We didn't read any mm. first wave feminist stuff. Mm. Um, and we were and again, this was not a theology class. So we weren't really reading feminist yeah. theology. Um, yeah. But I think if anything, I, the thing that I was really struck by at the end of the class was everyone that we read and everyone who was taking the class 
is really at the root of it struggling with this question of the relationship between our life in a social world and our bodies and mm. have very different approaches to thinking about what that relationship is. But mm. I had a conversation with one of my pastors at the church. She asked a very similar question. She had heard I was taking this class and was just like, talk mm. me through, like, what did you learn and what do you think we should learn? And I thought we have really failed to describe Christians have really failed to describe the value of human bodies well. And mm. then on top of that, theorized what that does and does not mean for men and women in the world and our kind of relationship socially and politically, and kind of just saying we're out of that conversation because ew, gross feminists is not helping them or us. And <laughs> like, yeah, we need to have yeah. more conversations about that. Whereas a lot of theologians today, it feels, especially evangelical theologians, it's like, we fought about that in the 90s and we're kind of done with that. And it's like, no, mm. these are, I'm not just saying this because I think like the people in my class were wrong about some stuff. I say it because this is like this deep human yeah. question that people are struggling with. And I think there are some good Christian resources for addressing it. But to them, we've done so much damage. We're really not any good. And yeah, paying, paying more attention to like rebuilding that relationship or kind of showing how, and even the professor in this class was surprisingly open. Like there just aren't a lot of times that people in this class would normally interact with theology students. So yeah. they were very intrigued by like, you know, the kind of comments we would make. We used language they didn't really understand. And it happened a mm. lot with some of the especially womanist folks, like black feminist stuff in like the mm -hmm. 80s and 90s, ton of that uses so many biblical references. And wow. the people in that class just don't know the Bible, a lot of them. And so they would be talking about some passage and I would go, I think it's interesting that this is very clearly a reference to the Garden of Eden, or this is really clearly a reference to the Samaritan woman or, and they, they were like thrilled with that. They just like, they don't have necessarily the resources for evaluating these important works in that kind of way. And so wow. it gave us a little bit of an in, but I just kept thinking like, there's just more we could do here. There's more that we could offer each other if we were, if we could kind yeah. of work on repairing that relationship. Would you, would you be willing to explore that for a second? I think that's, that's something I'm learning in therapy about how dehumanizing Christianity is, and particularly for those who then practice it in some way vocationally. Um, and I certainly, I certainly didn't have any instruction on the body. All I knew was the body was where the body was called the flesh, and that was bad. Yeah. And so yeah. I needed to escape <laughs> it um, and train it or beat it into submission. You know, to use a Pauline metaphor that was misappropriated. Yeah. So, so yeah. where, where do you where do you think you would start a conversation with somebody who said, "Yeah, that is a that is a question that seems sitting behind all of the gender conversations we're having, the sexuality conversations we're having, yeah. and that is at the root of so many cultural issues." Yeah, I mean, I remember like my favorite professor in seminary. The first class I took with him, my first semester, there was a bunch of like things he said that really rocked my world. But one of them was mm. working through what the flesh really means in the New Testament. And our kind of mm. easy association with the body is not what Paul is talking about, partially because if we're reading that in the larger context of scripture, we're reading both the creation account that describes yeah. human beings and bodies as good and made by God and repeatedly called good. Um, and we're also like, that's not just the one place that that happens before the fall. And then the fall makes human bodies bad again. There's so much in the new Testament that's affirming a bodily resurrection. I just spent mm. time writing a paper for this history of interpretation class on a famous like mid 20th century sermon that really was one of the, you know, important moments of kind of saying the kingdom of God is this spiritual reality. It's not a physical mm. thing. It doesn't have physical, it might have some physical effects in the world, but really it's ultimately this spiritual thing. And he goes through all these New Testament passages and I think really misinterprets them, but also misses some of the passages that are like actually addressing problems in the church where the problem then was the same problem now of thinking, I, I don't actually think a bodily resurrection is required. And if it's not mm. required, then actually how we treat people physically today doesn't really matter that much. I mean, that's been a perennial problem. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that that's so important in the New Testament means it should be really important for us to say, affirming a bodily resurrection is not just an abstract theological box mm. to check doctrinally. Yeah. It has real effects in people's. There's a reason why these are letters written to churches to affirm this. It wasn't just like fix your doctrine. It was you're mistreating people. And at the root of that is this 
misunderstanding of a real bodily resurrection. And it's connected to a misunderstanding about Jesus. Like Paul mm. says, mm. he resurrected physically. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. It is important then that you understand that our bodies will be different. They won't be perishable in the same way that they are now. Don't get confused mm. about that. But that's all in pursuit of affirming a physical bodily resurrection. And so if that's true, then it there's nothing in the middle of the story between those two parts that leads you yeah. to denigrate the body. There might be unique harms and ills that happen because of sin in the world, but that's not yeah. a reason to blame the body for sins totally. or for, you know, problems in our communities. And I really, part of what happened in this class very often for me was I realized that it wasn't just a Christian problem to really mm. denigrate the body or to, to end up falling into this place, this really Gnostic tendency of like, what really matters is what's in my brain or my soul or some kind of immaterial mm. thing. And I'm imprisoned by this body and I really am kind of at war with it. That's That's been a perennial problem outside of Christianity too. And we're supposed to be the ones that have like some resources for addressing right. that, but instead right. we've often fallen into those same traps. And it just felt like there were so many moments in this class where that was kind of at the root of it was actually weirdly enough, because a lot of feminists theorists will, will really care about the body. They'll write a lot about the importance mm -hmm. of the body. Mm -hmm. um, but I think especially in third and fourth wave feminism, partially because fourth wave feminism is so much on the internet, partially because mm -hmm. we are grappling, like you said, with some questions about gender and how that relates or doesn't relate to bodies. Um, it ended up in a place where I just kept being like, you know what doctrine suddenly feels so Christian and so important to me right now? is the goodness of our bodies. And that wasn't something I grew up hearing. Yeah, no, no kidding. We never, we never really talked about the incarnation as the answer to all of those Gnostic yeah. tendencies to denigrate, to denigrate the body. And, and, and I, so as you observe the cultural conversations, and I'm so sorry we just dove in, but <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, you, you, that's every, every, Every time we interview you, which I hope is many more, we're just going to ask you, what are you studying? What are you learning? And then okay. that'll be the whole interview because <laughs> it's ridiculously good. As you observe the cultural conversations around sexuality, um, how do you see the church's failure to address the body well in discipleship or theology, both? Or mm -hmm. how, how do you see that failure playing out? Yeah, I mean, I think like you just said, Mike, I grew up in churches where it did very much feel like the body is the problem. And mm -hmm. especially if we're talking about sexuality, it's like, it would just be great if we didn't have to. <laughs> like, yeah. I think there's a, yeah. there's a Dorothy Sayers essay I really love where she has this fake kind of catechetical instruction where she asks questions and then pretends like, if I just asked the world what they think the church thinks, this is the answer that they would give. Mm -hmm. And one of the mm -hmm. questions is, what does God think of sex? And the answer that she gives is, he tolerates it, permitted that the mm. parties are married and get no enjoyment out of it. <laughs> yeah, yep. and, and I think that there's like some truth to how people talk about that in the church that she's she's identifying. I mean, she's identifying this like 100 years ago almost. And totally. that's still true. Um, but the interesting thing, I feel like so much of how I think about especially questions about sexuality and gender have been shaped over the last two years by in the for the first time in my life being around a much greater diversity theologically of Christians at the Divinity School at Duke mm -hmm. and being around a lot more people who are in mainline churches, which I never really had a lot of exposure to, or just are more in more progressive evangelical churches, which I wasn't around before. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I, I now see some of my dear friends who oftentimes grew up in evangelicalism and are now in churches that are not evangelical or in some ways are not evangelical. Um, and it seems like the pendulum can swing the other direction where in some of the churches that they're in now, there's so much discomfort with any talk about sexual ethics because it was so poorly done yeah. that the church that they're in is, is just like, I don't want to say any, like we have no instructions mm -hmm. for you and no guidance because we're worried. We, we haven't figured it out and we don't know what to say. And we're worried about hurting you. Mm. And then I've seen the great harm that that can do as well, where it's like, there's, there's the extra biblical long list of rules that really denigrates the body, acts like sex is a bad thing, and and makes especially women in evangelical churches feel like their bodies are are dangerous or wrong. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the other side that says we no one gets to tell you what to do. You do whatever you absolutely want, and God will bless that. And I've seen havoc wreaked on friends mm -hmm. that I dearly love because they were looking 
for some, they, they were looking for some guidance. They actually yeah. recognized that it, this is such an intimate, important issue. And it's not mm. just, it's not, it doesn't fall completely in the category of the church has nothing to say about this or a spiritual yeah. leader should have nothing to say about this. I actually really deeply need help discerning what to do with my body because my body matters a lot. And also discerning these really tricky ethical questions about what is good for me and what is good for other people and what's good mm. for my community. And so I think the last couple of years being in this environment has shaped my desire to say, we've, we've got to have, we've got to both learn from a variety of Christian traditions that have gone, mm. I think, wrong in different ways, yeah. but also at the very root, I think the first thing that the church needs to say, and I actually think a lot of people who are not Christians at all are coming to this conclusion right now and are hungry mm. for someone to give them language to talk about this. The first thing to say is your body really matters. What you do with your body really matters. And mm. especially when it comes to questions about sex, this is this unique place of potential harm. Mm. And that's true, whether you're in a conservative evangelical church or whether you're in a really progressive city and you're not really thinking about any kind of sexual ethic, this is still a place of unique harm and we need guidance e with each other to figure out mm. how to handle that well. Yeah. And the person who's really, I think, articulated this the best, the best is Beth Felker Jones. She has this like tiny, tiny little book mm. called Faithful. And I love it because I really think I could hand it to people from a variety of perspectives on specific sexual ethics questions. Like maybe I disagree with them on, is this okay? Or, you know, specific questions of how people um, live their lives, but could agree with, well, the first Christian thing to say is our bodies matter, what we do with our bodies matter. And God actually mm -hmm. really cares, not in this like angry father in the sky kind of way, but because God cares about humans flourishing, God cares about what we do with our bodies. Yeah. My goodness. Who was the guest you had? They just brought us, she brought us the book at the dinner. Um, <clears throat> my body is not, um, a prayer oh, request. You, Yes. yes. <clears throat> that adds such a different dimension to this conversation yeah. too. Cause that conversation that you had with her, I had not, I don't think I'd ever even thought about it. Like let alone, it was just a brand new concept and idea. This idea of Jesus coming back and that his wounds were there mm -hmm. and that that was part of his perfect resurrected body was not hiding, yeah. you know, this or that. Um, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. What book did you say? Faithful? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. Just Jones. just for the people that are uh, listening and want to email us later and Sorry. say, <laughs> I just ordered it. Just press pause right now. <laughs> write it down. Yeah. yeah. Faithful. Well, she's Beth said, she's Jones. had. Uh, I follow her on Twitter, and she's had some amazing responses to some of the um, conversation around the book, which must not be named yeah. or something. Um, the the other thing I'm seeing, Caitlin, and I'd love your take on this is. There, there is the neglect of the body, but there's almost a counter Hellenistic move to exclusive focus yeah. on the body to the yeah. neglect of everything else. And that's yeah. the nutrition craze, the workout craze, the, um, the divorcing of sexual ethics from anything other yeah. than bodily pleasure. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you, how would you begin to articulate a Christian, Christian resources for that? Um, that error, which seems just as, you know, just as damaging. Yeah. I mean, it is funny that you say that. I feel like, again, what I've seen the last two years being in the context that I'm in is, and this is where like the internet doesn't help with this because you're just like <laughs> talking to whoever, you don't know what context they're in. You don't know what they're dealing with. So much of, I think the question of sexual ethics, and this is true of all other ethical questions, I think is first a question of discerning what is the error now? And we have deep mm. disagreements about what the error is now, which means oh, we have good. disagreements about the solutions to it. And I also think the difficult thing is we're always playing this dance where we discern what the error is and then we emphasize something else to correct the error, which is the right response. But then we don't always know when to stop emphasizing that thing because actually that's not the, <laughs> the emphasis we need anymore. And, we, you know, mm -hmm. um, so we're always pendulum swinging back and forth. Um, I mean, part of the Christian... Christian answer to this is even in the creation story, the account is of both matter and spirit. And that's the beginning of, of relationship with God is not just spirit or just matter. It is both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is even, again, like I was saying before, when Paul is talking about, you know, talking to people who are starting to kind of deny a bodily resurrection and saying, you know, Christ resurrected first, first fruits of this, but he does emphasize 
the body is different. There are different kinds of bodies. And this mm -hmm. one that you have now is perishable. The one you will have in eternity is a spiritual body, which is it's also that's kind of like mind bending in that we tend to pit spiritual and material against each other. And he's just like, no, yeah. this is a spiritual body. It's not perishable. Um, and also, yeah. I think, I mean, especially right now when we have like the rise of the nuns, right? Mm -hmm, and a lot mm -hmm. of people are saying, well, you're misunderstanding that they might not be identifying with a particular tradition, a denomination, a religion, but they're deeply involved in spiritual questions. They're mm -hmm. curious about horoscopes and more like pagan kinds of spirituality. And they, they really are not just thinking about their bodies all, oftentimes either. And so again, like we don't actually have to convince people a lot of the time that there is this spiritual dimension that really matters. But if we're just sort of assuming that, that we're dealing with like 19th century materialism, we're going to, we're going to miss the fact that Christianity says something to that, which is mm. you're absolutely right. This spiritual realm is real and important. This is, I think why there's a lot of emphasis right now in North American Christianity and Pentecostal circles. Like people are hungry for that. And the tide yeah. has really turned, I think both in Christian circles and outside of Christian circles mm -hmm. to really care about the spiritual dimension of it. And I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's so helpful to articulate those two as as poles, because as you said, I think when it comes to questions about sexuality, that really maps well on some of the ways that we tend to go wrong in one direction or the other is totally. to think what all that matters is my body. So anything I do doesn't really matter or nothing, you know, nothing about my body matters. And actually, it's kind of just like icky and gross and I should get away from it. Um, but the Christian story is always both of those yeah. things. You can't you can't separate them. Even though I remember again, this class I had beginning of seminary started with some quote. Is it C.S. Lewis or it's it, he didn't actually say it, but it gets attributed a lot to some <laughs> important Christian guy about yeah. you don't have um, you are not a body. You are a soul that has a body or uh, something like which is just like that's yeah. not we, we have spent hundreds of years hashing out the relationship between these two things for you to rely yeah. on such a. Yeah. Kind of silly, one-dimensional. It was Abraham Lincoln. Was Abraham, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. What's it What's it like for you to be a young woman in the midst of all of this? I would. I mean, I would imagine at Duke, uh, hopefully, they see you without a lot of the baggage that some conservative evangelical circles would have. But as you kind of navigate some some really, I don't know, difficult waters, what's it just what's it like? I mean, I only know what it's like as a middle-aged white dude who <laughs> who has, you know, standing enough that I don't have to wrestle with these a lot of these issues as as like as existential threats mm -hmm. um to me. But like what's that? I, I just because because you tweet on the weekends, you tweet about children's church and how great mm -hmm. it is, and then and then you're you're in. So you you, <clears throat> I just find you absolutely fascinating because you are this bundle of of awe and wonder and brilliance, and I just love that. And I'm I'm always just curious to what it's like to be um, you in the midst of all of this that's happening. Where do you see hope? What, what failure concerns you most? Hmm. Where do you wish the, the older generations would get their act together? <laughs> you know, any of those things. Mm. Um, you know, in some ways, it's very different being here. Um, as you said, I was at Dallas Seminary before this. So like mm -hmm. the seminary mm -hmm. context, and I was at a really really strictly complementarian church. Mm -hmm. um, so in some ways, that's very different. I'm at a church now that settled women's ordination like in the seventies and mm. at a school that is pretty 50, 50 men and women, um, and has supported women. I, I recently was actually in, in the library at the divinity school at Duke and saw a black and white picture on the wall of women students. And I went, I don't know if that could exist at Dallas because like mm. there, there's no black and white pictures of women. at Dallas. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. we haven't been there for longer <laughs> than like 30 or 40 years. Um, but <laughs> But it is interesting how like you can romanticize. It's the grass is always greener thing, you know, mm. of like, I forget that academia still is super sexist. <laughs> and like, mm. especially for for young women and women get treated as young for longer than men, um, especially uh. unmarried women. Um, I mean, I'm friends with so many brilliant women doctoral students who are in their late 20s, early 30s, 
and our colleagues are the same age or younger than us, but they're men and many and more, much more of them are married and have children than most of the women, which is its own whole dynamic, who just in church and in life and in the academy get treated so differently in terms of their age and the respect that's given them. And um, so it's interesting that like in some ways that has very much changed, but in other ways it is a good reminder that like, you know, it says in the beginning, like the, in Genesis, this is going to be <laughs> the issue between men and women. Um, so in some ways that doesn't really change, but mm. you asked so many questions. I'm trying to think about what I should Yeah. I mean, when you, when you survey Twitter or the, the big discussions that we're having in social media, um, which ones for you are the ones that stand out as the most significant? Mm -hmm. um, and which ones do you think just are, are people just arguing with each other, you know, and, and part of, you know, part of a, a tribe that is now just trying to keep its power and status. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. What, 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 what do you see? Cause I, I did, there's so much to be outraged about. I'm wondering what, what hits the Caitlin meter or the Caitlin radar? Like mm -hmm. what are the things going on out there that you're like, okay, this one, man, this one really matters to me uh, based on where I am in the kingdom. You know, I, this is part of the problem I was saying earlier with Twitter is I just feel like I'm increasingly convinced that so many of our theological and ethical questions that are important are so rooted in the place that we're in. And so mm. we are, like I said, we're always dealing with what is the error that I discern in the place that I'm in and what is the response. I remember a few years ago seeing a friend of mine who been in mainline churches his whole life, went to Yale, very different sets of concerns about things. He's an Orthodox, like faithful Christian. And he did this whole tweet thread about how like, we really need to stop kind of overemphasizing um, the kind of material social aspect of this. And we really need to think about the kind of spiritual and, and really quite personal dimensions of salvation. And I thought at first I was just like outraged and thought like, that's so wrong. And then I went, you're in a church that decided that we should really emphasize the material and social and political implications mm -hmm. of the gospel in like the twenties and thirties, 1920s and thirties has been doing that for a hundred years. And you've wow. seen a lot of people truly, you know, kind of substitute social mm -hmm. action for the gospel. And so what concerns you is regaining this sense of how it changes people's lives in a really yeah. personal way and the the real spiritual effective justification and sanctification on people. And I'm glad that in your context, in the church you're in, in the school you're in, that you're realizing that's the error there. But on Twitter, I read that and I'm just like, that is so far from the error. I can't imagine anything more wrong. And so I, I, I worry just in general that so much mm -hmm. of our fights on Twitter make us really make mistakes about what the real error is in the community that we're actually in, because it's mm -hmm. more shaped by what people are fighting about on Twitter than what is the error in my community that I have resources to address. Yeah, um, that's good. So that's like not an answer to the question, but I, no, that's, that's, if, that's a great answer. If I was going to give what I still think might be a like general answer with the caveat of all the stuff that I just said, it would be, and I'm biased because I've just spent the last like year thinking about this, but within evangelicalism in particular, I don't think we're going to change how much we care about the Bible. And I don't think we should. And I think instead of getting caught up in what is the newest book we're mad about or podcast that someone said something awful in, or we, we need to spend some more time like actually working out our disagreements about interpreting scripture instead of just continually going back and forth with, here's the Bible verse I'm pulling, here's the Bible verse I'm pulling, you don't care about the Bible, here are the people that do. And just being honest about the fact that we have differences, not just in our view of scripture. I think evangelicals yeah. think if we sort out, we all have the same high, high view, whatever that means, everything else just trickles down from that. That's and we so know good. that's not yes. true. So like, yeah. let's have conversations again. I'm biased. I think I'm going to write a dissertation about this, that, but that like, was, I think we, yeah. we need to have some better conversations about, no, actually we we're doing something specific when we come to the text and we're missing what's actually at the heart of our disagreement because we're fighting about our view of scripture or we're fighting about this specific issue instead of saying, when you come to scripture, you have a different method than me and that will shape our conclusions and we need to fight about that. 
Oh, <laughs> so good, Tim. You look like you got something to say, bro. No, I think it's great. I'm curious. The um, <clears throat> we were talking, and we read an article in my classroom on the environment, and um, uh, and so we were having a conversation with all the students, and they were talking about like one of the students basically just said like, "Look, I it doesn't directly affect me. I don't think that I can directly affect it." And so it's really low on my list of priorities. Mm. And so we kind of had a conversation out of there that I thought was really interesting. And then we were talking about who moves the needle on things. And I was like, well, who moves the needle on or who who has moved the needle the most or has provoked the most conversation about the environment in the last, mm. you know, six years or whatever? And it's Greta Thunberg. It's like she's your age. Who has She is a lot younger than pushed- me. <laughs> I'm not not you. I'm sorry. The uh, my students. Oh yeah. Well, even younger than. How old she, are your students? They're all like 19, 20. So oh, wow. she's okay. Yeah, she is not. She's pretty relatively close to, that. close to there. And then we had you know read an. Uh, they had to write a paper on an interview with Malala, and I was like, mm. you know, who has pushed the conversation on women's education stuff the most to the forefront? It was it's Malala. She's your age. And then the, we talked about the Parkland kids, and it's like those guys, those students were on stage debating congressman yeah. like marco rubio on an international stage where for people to see they have really brought this conversation about gun violence more up to the top mainstream level and as i can like, they're your age and so i was like i have a tremendous amount of like faith and um hope in like millennial gen z I, a lot of these generations get a lot of crap from the older generations but i have a ton of i have a lot of hope i think that there's a mm-hmm. Uh, BS meter and a transparency <laughs> uh, thirst that mm. an authenticity thirst that is new. So in regards to all the stuff that you just kind of went through, whether it's filtering through Twitter or at the seminary level or whatever, if someone tapped you and they're like, Caitlin, Caitlin Schuss, I want you to sit down and design the church for the next 100 years. Mm. Well, what, like, where in, would you start? I want to know. I, I, I want to know the answer to that too. <laughs> Well, I just think it's so fascinating. I think this, yeah. the generations that are coming up are going to reframe yeah. a lot. Yeah. And as the boomer generation or so and the model that has come with them, as that model, it's already, you can already see the gears, like the gears have no oil left. They're yeah. already starting to yeah. scrape and scratch. So it's like what this next generation is like, we're, you know, they're not going to be big tithers and they're not going to be big, yeah. like mm-hmm. they want just real clear authenticity. They want to be seen and heard and be part of the conversation, which I think is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so how would you like if they tapped you and they're like, hey, what does this look like for the next hundred years? What, how would you start? What would be the foundational pieces or the important pieces to kind of set that up? Yes. Wow. Caitlin, I... <laughs> come on. <laughs> I mean, I feel like my first answer would just be like, no, I don't want to. I don't trust myself. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, but if 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 pressed, I feel like. I mean, I really do think it probably is true that what will happen increasingly is smaller, um, more diverse churches that maybe aren't in a building, maybe aren't, um, don't have a lot of the kind of traditional structure that we've put behind things. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that's just probably what will happen, especially if younger people are involved in the church. There's a lot of distrust of institutions and of yeah. powerful men. And, you know, so I do think that's probably what will happen. I think if I had magic say do it, it yes, that's I, good. <laughs> I think one thing I would like change now in churches to prepare for, for what you've just described and what I think younger people will want <laughs> is this is like, <clears throat> sorry, are you okay? I'm great. Okay. Um, <laughs> I was just holding your book. The uh, yeah, I saw that. Wow. In the Bible. I know. We're going to talk about that in a second. But yes, okay. keep going. This is fascinating. Um, I mean, if uh, this is like, I'm overstating what I'm about to say, certainly. So don't, no one come for me. But I just, <laughs> if I could magically do anything right now, I would just get rid of youth groups and Ooh. children's ministry. <laughs> oh, let's go. Because I, I mean, I'm at a church now where we have, we have nursery and then we have something for pre-K to second grade. And then even the pre-K to second grade are mostly in the service before they're in children's church with us. And Mm -hmm. everyone above second grade is in the service the whole time. And the youth are in the service the whole time. And they just have kind of youth group on a Sunday night. 
I just would, I would want to make changes to how generationally segregated our churches are and how mm. much young mm. people are taught. One, we're so desperate to keep you that we're just kind of putting on a show for you mm. <laughs> and we're doing whatever we think we'll get. And it puts us in this awful, I mean, I remember hearing in seminary of youth pastor, a lot of my peers were youth pastors while we were in school explicitly saying you get in with the popular kids and that'll bring the most people to your youth group. Just totally, like yeah. not kingdom 100%. mindset things, like really messed up ways of thinking because it was just about getting kids in the door and then keeping them entertained enough to stay. And I, the same is true for kids. I worked in a children's ministry for years where mm. we were focused on big sound, big color, big energy, because we just want kids to like church. And I want kids to like church. I want teenagers to like church. I want them to like church because they know a variety of adults who care about them and they're actually involved in serving in the church. And they believe that this is a thing that's not for grownups. It's a thing for them. They're participating as active members hmm. from the time that they're a young child. Um, so that's what I, I wish would happen now to kind of prepare for if we're going to be smaller, we're going to be intergenerational. If we're going to keep kids around and teenagers around, they're going to need to feel like they have a stake. I mean, I love the church that I'm at now. There are kids that are in committee meetings because the things that we as a church do impact the teenager, you know? So like they have a state, literally there are teenagers in the committee who's hiring the youth pastor or who's making changes to the building because that mm. matters to them. Um, and then the thing that I, again, if I could like magically change something in the future, yes, yes, it would be, it would be, I do think, as I said, we're going to get smaller and less institutional. And in lots of ways that will be good. Again, it's like a correction thing where you're seeing what the emphasis has been and you're making a correction. My concern about that, the, if I could just like magically change something would be to, to give a lot of the young people who will end up being in those smaller house churches or kind of like communities that aren't quite a church and don't want to use that language would be to just encourage them to say, someone having authority isn't inherently bad and someone will have authority in your community whether you are honest about it or not mm. and where i think we will go really wrong in all of the goodness of maybe us getting smaller and more intentional and more transparent and authentic where we will go wrong is if we think that exempts us from the problems of our parents and our grandparents and the real problem was the pastor of a big mega church there couldn't be a problem with the guy who's just kind of leading this group of 20 people in his home until it is a problem because we weren't honest about right. authority and that authority wasn't accountable. And I just, if I could change anything about the direction we will go, it's to say it will be smaller. I hope that it will, I hope some things will die. I hope some institutions mm -hmm. and some ways of thinking will die. What I don't want us to do is to be so averse to building things that we don't put our energy and resources into making good things that serve other people than just the small group that we're trying to hold together. That might be a, there might be a season or a moment where it's like, Hey, we're just trying to like be Christians together the best that we can mm -hmm. when things are falling apart. Totally. But for us to still have a vision for both building things and then not assuming that we're the white hats that will build things without any problems that we won't end up in the situation our parents or our grandparents in because we're the good guys and we have the good theology and we have the good politics and so we'll be uh. good guys forever and it's like no we we really need to be honest about the fact that some people have authority accountable in the best ways that we can be and constantly checking on where we're going instead of just kind of thinking well we saw the mistakes they made and that in and of itself yeah. will keep us from making the same ones totally Oof. i think you nailed that last part like the idea that we since we are Christian and we are the church that we can't make mistakes, mm -hmm. therefore, when they are made, we shuck responsibility or push them under the rug. And then now we're seeing the fruit of that just mm -hmm. popping yeah. up everywhere. Yeah. So that's what, yeah, what an important lens to try to have for looking forward is <laughs> just the minefield we left behind us. Yeah. That's so good, Caitlin. What, do you, what, do you, what are you going to do your dissertation on? That was one of the questions I had for you today. Um, so it will definitely involve interpretation of the Old Testament prophets in political mm. theology. Mm. If wow. I like had to start writing it today, which I won't, I have to take my exams first, so I won't start <laughs> writing it today. But if I had to start writing it today, it would probably involve a handful of people interpreting Jeremiah. And those mm. people would probably include Augustine, and Mariah Stewart, who was like an early 20th century black abolitionist writer and also mm. the first woman to ever speak to a promiscuous audience in the U.S. Promiscuous meaning men and women were both there. 
What? Um, yes. <laughs> and what was her name? Mariah Stewart. It's spelled like Maria, but I learned from Jasmine Holmes that it's pronounced Mariah Stewart. Um, but definitely a like 19th, 20th century black hmm. interpreter of scripture will be involved and probably Augustine and probably some kind of modern, more exilic interpreter of Jeremiah, mm. whose focus mm. is really on the church as living in exile. And that's mm. that kind of way of interpreting Jeremiah is what I'm really interested in in terms of how that has implications for political theology. Yes. Speaking of political theology, it's coming. <laughs> the ballot and the Bible, it's coming. <laughs> in August, right? In August, yeah. Oh my goodness. And, and guys, and by guys, I mean the unified Voxology <laughs> slash Holy Post audience, where there is a great deal of overlap. Um, Liturgy of Politics was amazing. Thank we you, talked, man. last time we had you on, you were writing this. Yeah, um, that's right. And I have it, and I'm so excited for it. And the editor was like, do you want to interview? And I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> yes, we do. Um, but the subtitle, How Scripture Has Been Used and Abused in American Politics and Where We Go From Here. Oh, so good. <laughs> I don't I don't even want to ask any questions about it because I know you'll be doing like the 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 tour yeah. around that time. <laughs> but I mean, Caitlin, come on. Um <clears throat> and it seems like your sort of thesis around our debates really aren't about the Bible. It's about the process we use mm -hmm. to discern kind of the text. Um, uh, I see a lot of that sort of thinking in the book, which is mm -hmm. pretty freaking rad. How do we how do we navigate that? So, for instance, I was reading um, somebody, uh, um, one of my favorite Anabaptist writers wrote a book called Stuck Together. And it was about oh, yeah. how... <clears throat> Um, <laughs> if you're on YouTube, Tim's phone just flipped upside down, which looked like Tim's Tim, having a day, folks. Tim looked flipped upside down. Um, yeah, if you're just audio only, well, that was what that noise was. Yeah, seriously. Um, aye, aye, aye. In, in it, he was quoting Jonathan Haidt, um, who was talking about how very often there are two competing concern foundations there's the kind of authoritarian traditionalist mm -hmm. like why why would we change um and then there's the the care and fairness sort of cluster of concerns and so you you start applying those things to like gender issues and you know the fairness crowd is going to say well why would you dead name somebody mm -hmm. and why would you you know why would why would we single out trans kids and the other crowd will be like guys this is like male and female has been here forever come on mm -hmm. um and and we go kind of to the text with those sorts of concerns already in mind yeah uh it's not like those are shaped by the text as much right. as they're shaping the text as we bring them to the text how do we how is there a way to move forward on progress around some of these things. So let's say a step of progress would be, all right, let's just stop throwing Bible verses at each other and mm -hmm. saying we all hate the Bible if we disagree. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what it what it means when we come to the text, what we're coming to the text with and looking for and those sorts of things. Yeah. What, how does that change the discussion and what are, what are ways that we could even make progress with that kind of understanding? Yeah, I um, I feel like this book is like sort of implicitly shaped by um, Stanley Hauerwas has this very famous provocative line um, in the in his book about scripture where he he starts out being like we need to take the Bible out of the hands of totally. American Christians. Totally. Um, and I have learned so much from him, and I feel like my response to this is the exact opposite, <laughs> which is to be like, actually, I think there was probably a time when that was true. I actually think for all of the ways we throw Bible verses around on Twitter, we don't spend a lot of time reading the Bible. Like just even the most <laughs> fundamentalist Christians, we do not spend a lot of time reading the Bible. If you go back into history and look at the way we've used the Bible in other political debates, 
even if the interpretation was bad, we used so much more obscure references <laughs> because mm. we read the Bible. Like people read the Bible, people heard the Bible preached so much more, taught so much more. Um, so I want us to read the Bible and I want us to have conversations about the Bible when it comes to politics. I actually think as much as scripture has not been a place of common ground, it could be like, and it should be mm. in, in a, in a perfect world. <laughs> like this is supposed to be something we agree on its authority. We yeah. should be able to meet there and talk about it. Um, I think one of the things that makes it really hard is not just that we bring our own presuppositions and theology and culture to the text, but that we're dishonest about the fact that we're doing that. <laughs> like no one wants mm. to admit that they're bringing things to the text. They just want to say everyone else is. And if we were more honest with each other about the questions that we're bringing and the theology that we're bringing and mm. the and the like feelings and, you know, mm. all of the background personal stuff that we're bringing, that would that in and of itself, I think, would make a really big difference if we could kind mm. of in our churches work to say, hey, some stuff we bring is bad. Some stuff needs to be unlearned. There are biases. There's a whole chapter in the book on on interpretation during the Civil War. Your whole idea about what race is and the supposed science behind it is a bad thing to bring to the text. But you also yeah. bring good things to the text. For Christians, we would say having a orthodox Christian understanding of the Trinity is a mm. good thing to bring to the text. Mm. Um, we shouldn't try and just pretend we're a blank slate that doesn't have that. We should bring that. And then there's a bunch of stuff that's sort of neutral, like where mm. you grew up. You're bringing that. It might be good. It might be bad. It might just not really do anything to your interpretation, but it's there and it's shaping what you care about. Yeah. Um, like if you grew up in a rural area with a bunch of farmers, you will might you might bring a good background of better understanding what a lot of scripture, you know, the context a lot of scripture is written in. Um, or that might end up hurting you because agricultural techniques were really different than, than they are. But it's just something that you're bringing, not good or yeah. bad, but just a part yep. of who you are. Yeah. And if we could really work on un like unlearning what a lot of especially evangelicals i think believe but a lot of christians of different traditions too believe i that it that that's a bad thing like i mm. should be a blank slate i should come yes. as if i've never read the bible before yeah. that in and of itself would just be a huge thing to kind of i've been in a bible study at my church this whole year with some women it's overwhelmingly women a generation or two older than me mm. and it's common. We're reading through Genesis and people will be like, let's pretend we've never read this story before. Like we can't, we can't do that. Like I know what happens to Joseph. And actually the writer of Genesis assumes that I know this because this is a story that has saturated my community. No one's surprised mm. about what's happening here. It can be really cool if you've never, I'd love to learn from someone who's never read the story and what they yeah. take away from it, but I can't pretend that that's me. Um, and I can't pretend that I know that Jesus comes in the scene and that shapes how I'm reading Genesis. Like that's just yeah. a good thing that I'm bringing. I think that would make a really big, a really big difference. Man, I love that. Dang. Tim, any last questions before? I mean, Caitlin, you're the kind of person, because you do interviews, so you know interviewing isn't as easy as it looks. Um, but you know there are kind of interviews where you you have to have ask, you have to have questions prepared. Um, and then there's you. And <laughs> and I have them ready, but you're just so interesting that Aww. the conversation just kind of goes because whatever you're thinking about is interesting. So I love that. I just looked up and we've been talking 47 minutes. So <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Well, uh, Tim, any last questions? With that last thing, um, obviously that's an encounter that most everybody has had in church settings or in Bible study settings of having, um, sometimes it's even more advanced where you have people who are not in positions of authority, um, but feel that they have the, you know, gravitas to steer the conversation and to, uh, inform everybody of where they're wrong on certain, mm -hmm. um, so it's it's hard we're like we're we're trying hard not to start a church right now and so <laughs> while <late>. we're like <laughs> while we're working through what a lot of this stuff looks like that it that does you know not with this group in particular with that much but everyone is bringing in <clears throat> their trauma and their positioning and whatever church they grew up in and their understanding of scripture and so you want like in some parts not to bring a lot of that bias to it. And then at the same time, 
I just, I, I, I don't know if there's a question here as much as I'm just thinking about mm-hmm. what both of you guys are just saying and how we, as how, and as we look at the church in the future, how we form a group of people together, how we agree on a way to approach the text that is how the text should be approached rather mm-hmm. than everything we've grown up with mm-hmm. or whatever we're being fed politically that obviously also, especially right now, can help form your theology. Right, we're so formed by the two parties in this country about how we want to approach and advocate for things. Um, so this is just right at the tip of my head because somebody just asked me. They're like, I, you know, I've haven't listened to the podcast in a while. Where's a good place to start? I'm just like, kind of, I've deconstructed my faith down to a square one. What's yeah. where do I start? And I was mm. like, man, where do you start <laughs> when you're when you erase the page or turn the page off and you just have a blank page? Where do you go from there? Like you. Is it about learning how to approach the Bible? What it is, is a, mm. what the physical entity is and how you should read each thing? Mm-hmm. Or is it about like, I don't mm. know. So it opens up, it prompts so many questions about how we are meant to meet and how we're meant yeah. to admit our errors and our faults and learn from those and, and grow. And so I'm, I'm just perpetually curious as to how this is going to map itself out. Yeah. I really like what you said. We. We have the kids a part of things and it's a debate going back and forth all the time because sometimes it makes it hard for the adults to work out their faith yeah right. having the kids there but the kids kids are always so much smarter than we give them credit for mm-hmm. and so they bring a lot to the table that's important and so there's a there's a i don't know a discernment and a balance there that's really yeah. difficult but it probably should be difficult because we're dealing with a bunch of humans and yeah we bring a lot of diversity just in our small little camps. Um, what, what if if someone was going to start with the Maria Stewart thing or Mariah Stewart? Where would what would be a good? Is there a text or a book or a, I see a collection of essays and. Yes. Yeah. So she basically, I mean, she had a pretty short writing career. She really wrote a handful of things when she was fairly young, um, and then went on to really practically serve people. She um, worked in a early Freedmen's Hospital and and did a bunch of other stuff. But her kind of most famous speech is um, Religion and the Pure Principles of Morality, which is this really beautiful defense of abolitionism from a deeply biblical perspective. And I also, like it's been helpful for me, especially reading a lot of abolitionists, a lot of civil rights um, workers and activists who are using the Bible so much because I'm around a lot of people who, as you were just describing to him, like have deconstructed, don't know where to start, and also have a bad taste in their mouth about the Bible because it's been misused. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's been helpful for me to to both talk to them and then encourage that they read some of these folks to say, not just to say like, oh, look, this person had it worse than you when they read the Bible, but to say like the white evangelical leaders that hurt you don't own the Bible. It is not their yeah. property. And Boom. actually, oh, snap. The, the people who have interpreted it so faithfully and imaginatively and with great political effect have most often in America been black Christians. Um, there's other groups, yeah. especially marginalized groups that have done it as well. But I, it's hard for me to think of people who have done that more often with more examples for us to go to than black Christians in America. And spending time reading people for whom scripture was liberatory and desperately needed to fuel the incredible suffering that they were going through for the sake of justice. It just has changed how I feel about the Bible in a really positive Mm -hmm. way. And not just in terms of like, let me interpret the way they've interpreted. I love learning from how they've interpreted, but learning from the sense of, I have fought for this to be for me because I believe God is for me has that's just something that I think changes how you feel about the Bible. Oh, I think that's huge. Yeah. La- I think last time you were on, I asked you guys both, you guys made a comment about the Holy spirit or discerning the Holy spirit or something to that. Oh extent. yeah. Yep. And I was like, how do, what does that mean to you? And that's what you kind of said was like, I look <laughs> to black women and to see, and, and then let them show me which way the wind is blowing. And yeah. So there's a lot, that idea of liberation and <laughs> what were we talking about? We're talking about, oh, the Lord's prayer and like picking apart the Lord's prayer and looking at, I have my daily bread mm-hmm. and I'm thankful for it, but there's a lot of people in my community that do not. Yeah. And what is it about the Lord's prayer that prompts me to look for justice in my area and, and whatnot? So yeah, there's just so much in there to play with. 
Yep. Caitlin, we so appreciate you. Thank you for all the, the good work you're putting out there. Um, Thanks, Mike. Where's the best? I mean, do you direct people to Twitter or do you have other places online? Do you have your own website yet? Mm-hmm. Do you have? Yes. All right. What is it? <laughs> CaitlinShast.com. Boom. Whoa. How'd you come up with that? That's so amazing. <laughs> I, did, it's a, I know. It's shocking. I didn't have to fight anyone for it. There yeah, are so I can't many believe Caitlin that Shasta's was an yeah. I know. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate you. Thanks. I heard, I have to tell you, Mike, I, the funniest thing I heard from the other ones you did with Phil and Sky was the part where you called us the Trinity. Yeah. And I was the father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There, I, I mean, Tim, did you disagree with that? I don't, I think, no. I think if people listen See, I mean, when you mix when you mix you guys all together, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful cake. But the ingredients <laughs> are great too, and oh, that's nice. on their own. And so, if you if you listen separately <laughs> to the episodes, you'll clearly see you are the father. There, okay. I don't think there's any. We were also trying to depth. plant those seeds so they both knew who was really in charge or should Thank be. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. You tell Phil who's in charge here. <laughs> oh, yes. But no, we're we're just so grateful for, for what you guys are up to and cheering you on. When are your exams? I'll spend all of the next year studying for them and then take okay. them probably about a okay. year from now. And then, yeah. and then the I just have to read like a hundred, not a hundred, probably yeah. like 300 books and then we'll take them. Oh, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what are you doing next month? library. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All I got it. Right. Well, and I have to, I got to learn German first. We got to, where's the lot? Oh man. <laughs> that's when you know it's for real. That's yeah. when you know it's legit. If you've got to learn German. Oh, I just got to learn German first. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, God bless you, young lady. And I don't mean that in the Southern way where they say, bless your heart and it's bad. Mm -hmm, I mean, like, Jesus, take the wheel of her heart (laughs) as she learns German. That's ridiculous. Kaylin, the thing that I want you to do for fun is to think about what would be the next midnight mass conversation. Oh. Like, what kind of fun conversation do you want to have for an episode that's just on something out there that we can play with? That's a good, that's a good. You just stew on it. I, yeah, well, what I need to do is think of something because the only way I can justify watching anything in my life right now go. is True. if it is to talk to you about it. Well, let's. You need a little, you need a little respite. So. Yeah, yeah. we well, need to, or we could watch something in German and you're killing birds. Dark show. At that point. That. Um, no, that's, yeah, that's so good. That Midnight Mass convo was the funnest thing. You know what we should do? Yes. You don't, you don't have to take this as a serious suggestion. It's just the first thing that popped into my head. Um, I've been meaning to watch. I've only seen part of it. Um, it's like 69 or something. A Thief in the Night. Oh, it's like the, the earliest Rapture movie. No, for that, we're all going to fly to the same area and we're going to Mystery <laughs> Science Theater it. Oh, we're perfect. sit there yeah. and watch it and do commentary on it while we watch I, it. I don't know. I, I'm in for this too. <laughs> oh my goodness that's so great that's so we can great do that. yes we yeah see i think we should write a horror movie around the rapture oh we should yes where, yes where so where down. i don't know if you're joking or not but no I'm, I'm i'm totally like not so that if you're raptured it's bad and the people that are left behind are the ones that are blessed. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I've never read the actual Left Behind books. I've only read the teen Left Behind books. So I'm currently reading I the regular know. Left Behind books because I just feel like I should read them because I wrote a oh. chapter about, not about Left Behind, but about that kind of era. Yeah. And there's a whole, I didn't realize that in oh. the first Left Behind book, there's this whole thing where a few people think that it was like aliens who like were trying to kill the people or like vaporize yep. them or something. So Yep. Yep. I mean... And then all the Pentagon stuff we're learning, it's yeah. all its all setting up just like they said. So I'm just saying that's why thats why I'm Nick Cage, because Nick Cage starred in Left Behind. And, um, and that's why I'm Kirk Cameron. I'm the dumbed down. Yes. Mike. <laughs> but you were the original, right? Weren't you the OG? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Nick, Before, Nick came yeah. second? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Midnight. I, I'm trying to. Yeah. That's just so brilliant. All right. 
we're going to let you go because I'm sure, I mean, between now and maybe four o'clock your time, you can read one of those books. Hmm. Um, <laughs> what are you going to do the rest of the day? Like what's a, what's a, what's a Caitlin Friday or no, this is a Thursday. What's a Caitlin Thursday? Thursday? Um, this it's week, May the 4th. this week is an abnormal week. Cause this is the first week after the semester ended. Yes. So I gave myself a week to like do a little bit of work, but not do a lot. So I'm actually going to go get a pedicure after this. <laughs> That's what I'm go. talking about. <laughs> That's wonderful. It's not a normal Thursday, but okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anyone that knows you thinks like that you spend a lot of time sipping martinis and getting yeah. pictures. Yeah. yeah. Are Not you still normally. are you still are you still down in uh down at Duke or did you go home? No, I'll be in North Carolina most of the summer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well thank you. You're the best. Thank you guys. You got it. It's always fun. All right. To be continued, Caitlin, thanks. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also Join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.